Listen to this. This is Psalm 73. I'll read the whole thing. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are, are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end, literally their afterward. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this time that we can sit under your word, where we can sing your praises, we can confess, we can be reminded that you are a God who forgives, and now that you are a God who feeds our souls with truth. So make us more and more hungry for your truth. Give us a deeper desire for what is most true. Help us to bring all that we are into what you say about reality. That you might correct us, encourage us, rebuke us, equip us for everything good. That, that you might remind us that you see through the facade. And you get down to our motives. And you see our heart. So have your way with us and deal with our hearts. All for your glory. Amen. I love the Psalms because as one man described 500 years ago, this was his phrase, 
The Psalms are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, which means that there's not a high that you can have that isn't described in the Psalms. There's not a low that you can go through that aren't talked about in the Psalms. The Psalms give us language for every single aspect of life. This morning, we're looking at Psalm 73, which was written by this guy named Asaph. If you do a little bit of research, you'll find out that this was a guy who was the choir director in Jerusalem, meaning he helped God's people learn how to sing. He helped God's people uh, in song and worship. And this, when you read Psalm 73, isn't it refreshingly honest? You read this psalm and he's talking about his life and things that he is experiencing and how that is coming in contact with what he knows to be true about God. It is refreshingly honest. This psalm tells us not only what God does for us, but this psalm tells us about what God is to us. Here's the point. This is what I want you to take out today. God is trying to convince us through Asaph of this. God is good. That's the point of the psalm. God is good. Do you ever struggle with the goodness of God? When you look at your own life, do you ever, ever wrestle with the reality or the question? I don't know if God's really good. That's what this psalm is about, to try to help us understand that God is good. Here's the roadmap. If you're someone that likes to take notes or you like to mark in your Bible, here are the three, uh, this is the roadmap from this morning, the three things we're going to talk about. Stumbling, which you see in verse 2, until, verse 17, God, verse 25. Those are, that's our roadmap this morning. God is good. So we're going to talk about stumbling, we're going to talk about until, and we're going to talk about God. You ready? Make sense? Somewhat clear? All right, let's jump in. Let's talk about stumbling. In order to do that in verse 2, we got to start with verse 1 and start where the psalmist starts. Look where Asaph starts. He starts out with his declaration, surely God is good to Israel. See that? He starts out by saying that God is good, and beloved, God is good. He is the definition of good. We wouldn't know good apart from God. Without God, there's no way to comprehend what is good. But to study God is to understand what it means to be good. As difficult as that may be, or as awkward as that may be, or as contrary to what we may think goodness is, God is good. And without him, we wouldn't even understand what that word means. And what Asaph is saying here is that he is especially good to Israel. And that means he's especially good to his people. That means he's especially good to his church. Remember the book of Galatians? The last chapter of that book, we are being taught in many other places that we are the Israel of God. God has always had one people. He doesn't have a plan for Israel and a plan for us. He's got one plan for both, Jew, Gentile, throughout the world, all the time, everywhere, never changing. So God is especially good to his people. 
He loves his people. He provides for his people always and forever. He has a special plan for his people. He has a special eye toward his people. Yet, yet, this is what Asaph sees. He starts by saying that God is good, and then he begins to describe what he sees, if you will, every day in his experience. Look at verses 3 through 11. We'll go through this quickly. This is what he sees every day. Here are some things. What he sees is that... um, People who try to live without God seem to have no pangs until death. Their bodies seem to be like sound or healthy and they seem to be thin. In other words, they seem to have a sound body that they seem to take care of themselves and everything's just working out great. They don't have health problems. If you continue on, it seems that what he sees indicates that they're not in trouble like other people are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. You see that in verse 5? Then in verse 6, he draws this conclusion. Therefore, pride, they wear their arrogance like jewelry. You know anybody like this? You know anybody that's trying to live without God and their arrogance just oozes from them all the time? Maybe you got a coworker that way? Oh, and let's not forget. Even followers of Christ can act this way, can't they? It's not as though we're immune from any of this, are we? Anybody still struggle with pride? Anybody like to know everything in whatever room you're in? That way you can always make sure that you're the one on top, right? Asaph sees all of this. He even goes further. It's not just that their arrogance exudes from them and and highlights who they are like jewelry, which is also true for us sometimes. It's that they even begin to challenge God. Look at verse 9 and following. It's, it's, It's as if their arrogance leads them to verbalize, does God really know anything? I mean, look at my life. I've got it made, I'm healthy, my family's great, my job's great, I'm not afraid of anything, I'm not even close to dying. Does God really know what he's doing? Because it doesn't seem like I need him in order to make it. I don't need him in order to have my best life. I don't need him. I don't even think that he knows what he's doing. See, can you tell this angst that Asaph is feeling? Do you ever sense that in your own life? I think it's around verse 16 where he says, man, when I thought about how to understand this, oh, it was like a wearisome task. It was vexing to my soul. I'm not exactly sure what to do with this. At the same time, he's somewhat circumspect. Look at what he says in verse 15. It's like, you know, it's probably better that I don't talk to children. Because I'm not going to say very good things to them about God. And and, and to highlight this and illustrate it for us, this is where the stumbling comes in in verse 2. And uh, um, slipping. It's great imagery, isn't it? Um, Y'all ever enjoy, maybe this has nothing to do with you, maybe this is entirely personal, 
Do you enjoy going to stores and walking in the front door and seeing that, that yellow triangular thing that's on the floor that says in several different languages, caution what floor? Now, I'm sure none of you did this before, but anybody ever see that as a challenge? Or is that just me? Like, here we go. I get to run and slide and see how far I can go. You ever done that before? Come on, y'all, got to live a little. You ever been on a ladder and felt it slip? One time, one of my jobs was uh, uh, painting and uh, painting, you know, houses, not like artistic painting, uh, but, uh, you know, paintbrush, you know, kind of painting things like houses and inside and outside of houses. I remember being on the second or th- uh, second floor of a house and the, uh, the back portion of the house had, had a part of a roof that came down to the gutter from like bedroom windows and whatnot. And I remember having a stepladder leaned up against the wall trying to paint close to the upper gutter on the other side. And I remember that uh, my ladder didn't hold up. And it slid down the wall and I was on top of it. Thankfully, my hands didn't get smashed because when it fell, I just put my hands like this. And then I slid all the way down that rooftop to the other gutter. You ever had things happen like that before where you slip? Let's let's, let's scale it back. Have you ever been walking upstairs and accidentally not put your foot in the proper place for the next step? You can do that whether you are two or 102. Has that ever happened to you? Because in those moments, what's happening? You have a fresh sense of vulnerability, right? Here I am thinking that I can slide across this wet floor. Here I am thinking that I can stand on the top of this stepladder and I can reach everything I need to reach. Here I am carrying whatever I'm carrying, walking upstairs, and I know exactly where this next step is and then whoop, and realize I'm done. In that moment, you have a fresh sense of vulnerability. And that's exactly what Asaph is talking about from a spiritual perspective. He's saying, I know that God is good, but this is what I see. And what I see is that there are people all over the place who, who try to live without my God, and they seem to be the healthiest, they seem to be the wealthiest, they seem to have the most opportunities, they seem to have the ear of the most important people, they seem to live a life of ease. They're not even afraid of death. And he says, when I try to understand this, the goodness of God, and yet this is what I see, man, it's, 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 I'm slipping, I'm struggling. Sound familiar? You ever had that issue before? Maybe going through it right now. You see, all kinds of people are confused about God. Whether you're here this morning and you believe, whether you're here this morning and you don't believe, whether you're here this morning and you don't know what to believe, all kinds of people are confused about God. Asaph was a follower and he was struggling. Are you following God and struggling with this? Here's some ways that that can manifest itself just to try to apply this more deeply. Asaph was under the impression, look at verse 13, that if he obeyed God, he thought his life would turn out in a certain way. 
In other words, if I obey God, I should be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. I should have a life of ease. That's why he's saying in verse 13, have I cleansed my hands in vain? Like, did I do all this stuff? Did I live an exemplary life so that I would end up like this? When those people who are trying to live without my God seem to have it all together and seem to be healthy and wealthy and everything else that I want? Asaph is assuming that if he just follows the rules that everything's going to work. Let's go even deeper. He was probably the kind of guy that searched the scriptures and the way that he studied the Bible is this. I want to find the principles and by the way, I want to turn everything into a principle. Then I master that principle and then I get the outcome that I want. That's the real pandemic in spiritual America. That this is how we've been taught to study the scriptures. You just look at any topic you want to talk about. Parenting, uh, marriage, money, uh, education, anything you want. And find a principle, master the principle, and then get what you want. We can all be really confused about God. It can even go further than that. Because there are other ways that we can be confused about God. Here are a couple other things. You can be at a low level thinking, you know what? I'm not sure God's handling the world the way that he should. You can think, I'm, this is going on in the world and God seems to be good. So why in the world is this happening here? Why are these people going through this? Maybe it can be this. Maybe you can be wrestling with this morning. Is following God really worth it? It's like, is following him really worth it? Maybe there's just a low-level anger with God. All of that is what Asaph is talking about. All of that is how we can be vexed in our souls and it can be wearisome to us to try to think about this. It's how that the root of bitterness, doesn't he mention that in one of the verses? I was bitter, that the bitterness can be there because you know that God is good, at least that's what you've been taught, but yet this is what you see? This is what you experience? Bitterness can begin to grow. Until, look at verse 16 and 17. Again, trying to go through this quickly. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. I was reminded about those who don't follow God and what life is actually like for them. By the way, to go back just briefly, have you ever been in those modes in which you catch yourself exaggerating something, you know, where something's not going right at work and you're like, my boss, he is always a jerk, when really it's only three things he's ever done to you? You ever find that in your marriage relationships? My spouse, they just, they don't care. And literally that meant about the most recent thing 30 seconds ago. It's not that you actually believe that. Asaph exaggerates this too. Look, they are always at ease. I'm sure you've been there. All of us are prone to exaggerate. But something changed. 
He was able to express that he was exaggerating. He was able to express all these things and try to sift through this dilemma that he had by this in verse 17, until I went to the sanctuary of God. What do you think Asaph saw in the sanctuary? He saw the altar. What do you think his experience was? He saw the place where the sacrifice was made. And he knew that there was something beyond that called the Holy of Holies where a holy God dwelled. Asaph came into the worship of God and what happened? He was reminded about what is most true. He was reminded about the God-centered view of reality. He was reminded through the sacrifice that we know was Jesus and that was, that was what was being pictured, that God was a God of mercy, that God was a God of grace. And with his own job, he was actually going to help people sing and to praise God. I don't know why you come to worship. Sometimes I don't know why I come to worship. But sometimes we can think, I'm going to go to worship because I want to feel better about myself. And we can evaluate worship services based on how they make me feel. Or sometimes we go to worship services thinking, you know what, I have to hear what I only agree with. And if I disagree with anything, then this is done. I want to go back. You can go to worship services because you want to escape. Not because you really want to deal with anything in our lives, but just because we want to get away from our life. That is not when transformation happens. You want to burn out following God? Think that way about worship. You want to burn out following God? Evaluate worship based upon how you feel and if everything agrees with you. Asaph went to worship because he wanted to hear about God. And he was reminded about God and God's mercy and God's majesty. He was able to help people praise God. And you know how the services ended? There were these guys called priests, which we can call pastors. They were priests, and one of their tasks was to declare a blessing over God's people. We do it every week here. Because we want you to know this is something that God has intended for his people at the end of worship for millennia. Because worship is not about you and it's not about me. Worship is about God and how great he is and how glorious he is. And when we begin to recognize that worship is about God and worship is about grace and worship is about about the gospel, it begins to reorient our lives, doesn't it? So that we begin to think, oh, maybe I'm coming to worship today with this low-level anger with God. And he wants to remind me that he loves me. He forgives me. He's worthy of praise. He's going to nourish my soul with the gospel. And he's going to send me out with a blessing. Do you realize how that reorients your life? Because if you're like me, you can get awfully distracted about all these other things that are going on. I did not intend on spending my uh, six weeks break going to doctor's appointments almost every day, okay? My plan was to be with my family and rest. I was going to continue to do some things at the church behind the scenes because there are things going on with officer training and yada, yada, yada. I wasn't planning on going, having to be at the doctor and getting poked and prodded and violated for six weeks. 
That wasn't my plan, okay? But God had something else for me. And you might be able to tell, I'm not exactly okay with it. But I'm trying to get there. And I'm bringing that to God. Because I know that he loves me. And I know that he cares for me. And I know he forgives me. And I know he's going to bless me. And I know that Jesus is true. And when I focus on that, it helps my surgery seem eh, not quite as scary as I think about it when I'm not thinking about God. Does that make sense? Asaph changed. Breakthroughs happen in worship when they are God-centered. Breakthroughs don't really happen if you go to worship services and they're about you or you about finding new methods or learning new principles for you to master to get the outcome you want. And if you're willing to really think about that, just think about how you study the scriptures. Just think about what you actually hear at worship services. Just think about what actually goes on in your life when you think about living with God. Is it always really about the outcome? Then my friends, what has happened is that we've turned Christianity into this. God's the best way to control my life. If I just do what he wants, I'll get what I want. If I just follow what he says, then I'm going to get the outcomes I want. But what are you going to do when you don't get the outcomes you want? Might need to reorient and think about who's really in the center of life. Because it shouldn't be us. And that leads us to the third, God. And we'll anchor this in verse 25. Asaph had these breakthroughs, which by the way, just to highlight for you, look at verse two again. For I had nearly slipped. Did you catch that? Almost stumbled. Did you catch that? He's given us an illustration so we can feel what he was feeling. Knowing that when the breakthrough happened, he was reoriented. He could say, man, I was on my way down. But focusing on God brought me back up. That's why verse 25 is so powerful. Who, whom have I in heaven besides you? And, and what on earth do I desire besides you? Do, you? do you hear that? What is it that you really want? What is it that I really want? What is it that we really want? Where else can you go for the words of eternal life? Where else can you go to understand reality other than to Jesus? Where else can we go? Then look at the verses surrounding verse 25. Look at verse 23 and 24. What is Asaph saying? God, you're going to be with me. Listen to this. Look at verse 23. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Asaph got a fresh sense that God is good. It's not just that he could say, who, am I have heaven, who do I have in heaven besides you? What do I desire on earth besides you? But he's like, look. You're continually with me and I'm with you and you're holding me by your hand. Look at verse 24. You guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. 
God, you're with me all the time. And you're there to counsel. You're there to guide. You're there to be with me all the time. And one day, when I take my last breath, my eyes will open up in your presence. Look at the end of verse 26. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There was a breakthrough in his life and he understood God was good in fresh ways, which meant that he understood himself in new ways too. That's why he would say, my flesh and my heart fail. See that? Anybody resonate with that? Because my flesh is failing. And my heart has failed. Look at what he says, but I was like a beast before you. I'll try to make sense of that. On my Facebook feed recently, I've been having these videos pop up, whatever the algorithm is that has led to this, I don't know. Perhaps it's my children, but I'm not throwing them under the bus in front of you. But (laughs) these videos come up about, you know, animals fighting and stuff like that. It's been really wild. I really enjoy watching them though. But there was, there was this one that I haven't been able to get out of my head and it was this. And perhaps God made it stick there because of this. Because this is weeks ago when I saw this one. It was a mountain lion who had gotten stuck in a bear trap. And a guy was trying to help the mountain lion break free from the bear trap. And you know what was happening? The closer the guy got to trying to help the mountain lion, you know what was happening? The mountain lion was swinging with his other with his other paw. He was charging the guy. He was hissing at him. Let me tell you, that's pretty intimidating. Can you imagine a mountain lion coming at you and hissing and swinging at you with his big old claws? This is a wild animal. What was going on? The mountain lion couldn't tell that the guy that was trying to help him was actually trying to help him. All the mountain lion saw was a threat. All the mountain lion saw was that this is not supposed to happen. You shouldn't be here. Even though I've only got one arm, I'm going to use all the other one I've got to take you out. Asaph is saying that oftentimes we function like a beast before God. He's doing something in our lives that we don't necessarily want done. It's going to be painful, but we're already in pain. But he's coming to relieve it and to help and to break us free. And we're just acting like a beast. To continue the analogy, if God is a shepherd and we're sheep, don't you know that shepherds do things to sheep sometimes that sheep don't like because the shepherd knows more than the sheep? That's what Asaph is saying. I have a realization that oftentimes I act like I am scared and I am myopic in my view, self-centered in the way that I position my life. And here you are, wanting to free me, then save me and relieve me and set me free to be who I'm created to be in Christ. Beloved, God is good. Because we can't always have money or health. We can't always have the ear of the most important people. And we can't expect to have money. We can't expect to have health. We can't expect to have any of these things that we think is so important. But we can always have God. That's why he's good.